Welcome, everybody, to a new year and a new season of episodes from your folks here at Take the Hill. Um, we are super excited to kick off 2021 with something a little bit special. Uh, we have a dear friend, Stefano Paris, who we're going to introduce to you very shortly, who is going to be taking us on a tour of Italy. Stefano is the founder of I for Italia. Right. So as you know, tours this past year and travel this past year has kind of slowed down a little bit. But what he really does is he enables you to dream, plan and travel be for Italy, you know, with your passionate local experts uh, that he knows in and around, you know, is the region. You know, his team delivers live virtual tours that are super interactive and incredibly immersive. You know, and they offer you insight into not only the food, the culture, the lifestyle, but they do it from the comfort of your home. So Stefano, we are extremely honored to have you here this morning. Grazie mille for inviting me. Wonderful. And like you said, I, and we'll talk about it more along the way, you know, because I want to make sure you have the time and Stefano has the full time. Um, you know, we did have the opportunity to tour Italy in person with Stefano uh, a year or so ago, um, and it was an amazing experience. You know, so whether you're working with him, you know, through a virtual environment or you do have the opportunity to travel with him uh, through Italy yourself, I highly recommend it. Um, he's a, a genuine and authentic person. And like you said, he really is knowledgeable and just a gracious host. So, Stefano, the show is yours, my friend. Thank you so much. This is probably the, the best presentation I, I was ever part of. And no <laughs> <laughs> pressure at all on me. So, that's it's all good. No, it's thank you so much for inviting me on this uh, beautiful, uh, for this beautiful opportunity to share. Uh, uh, like my city, the city of Rome, and uh, a little piece of Italy with you today, uh, virtually. And uh, yes, we were uh, born in 2020 in a time where you know travel, physically travel, uh, traveling was impossible. So we decided to create something to keep ourselves busy. First of all, because we haven't ran any tour for a whole year, unfortunately. And uh, and also, you know, to keep the dream alive, the dream of discovering Italy. Um, our most important mission is actually to share Italy as locals, because unfortunately we've seen uh, an increase in mass tourism and uh, basically the focus on Italy is kind of like fading away, going through a kind of like stereotyped image of the country. So we want to bring back the connection between Italy and the travelers and the labs, as many people as possible to get connected with Italy authentically through the eyes of locals. So today uh, I'm going to show a little bit of a presentation of Rome, um, which is basically um, all about food, mostly. Uh, it's called Eternally Hungry in Rome. So Eternally Hungry in the Eternal City. Uh, it seemed to me like a, a, good, a good place to start. Um, basically, so I'm going to start this presentation from here and we're going to fly over Italy for a second. And uh, we're going to, to have a little bit of a, an introduction about what uh, food in Italy is uh, in general. So if I would, you know, if I wanted to say something provocative, I would say that Italian food doesn't exist. And uh, I know I would kind of shock you by saying that, but Italian food doesn't exist in the sense that Italian food is extremely regional. 
So basically what you would eat in Rome would never be the same thing that you would eat in, in Venice. One simple example is pizza. Pizza is like something that you would never want to eat in Venice. Why? Because they're not even allowed to have a brick oven in Venice because fire is not allowed in Venice because it's all built on wood. And this is the reason why the city burned down many times over the centuries. So today, if you go in Venice and you order a pizza, you will never get a brick oven pizza, which essentially means just don't order pizza in Venice because that's not what they do. They have seafood, they have a lot of different stuff. And so you should focus on the regional cuisine. Same stuff with the wine. The wine that you order around Italy, you should always order um, regional native wine. Why is that? Because Italy is has the most diversity when it comes to wine in the world. So basically every city you go, you're going to find a different uh, wine that comes from the very region. So in Rome, the most important thing is that we're going to eat as Romans, okay? Um, and so I would like to show you a few dishes that you must try when you go to Rome that are typically in Rome, typical from Rome, and you shouldn't order them everywhere else in Italy. Okay, so let's start right away with something that I am extremely passionate about. I'm taking you to actual places, to real places where locals go. And this is a uh, first place where we're going today. Obviously, we're starting today with breakfast. The good thing about virtual travel is that you don't need any passport, you don't need any you know, to get on the line and do the, you know, the security check or anything. There is no jet lag, nothing. You just get to Rome right away. So today we are right in the heart of Rome, very close to the train station over here. And we are in this place, which is called La Regoli. Regoli is basically a pastry shop um, that started in 1916, okay? Um, not only this pastry shop has amazing pastries, amazing food, uh, it also allows you to basically travel back in time uh, because when you enter regularly, uh, you're going to see, you know, a store that never changed in over a hundred years. Um, so you kind of have this Art Nouveau kind of furniture. Uh, you're going to have Carlo and Laura that have been doing this, um, carry on a tradition that has been going on for generations. They're going to welcome you to the shop with a big smile on their face and you're going to try some of the best um, breakfast, you know, pastries that you should try when you go to Rome. And this is one of the things that I'm talking about. When you go to Rome, you should eat this guy, which is called the Maritozzo Compana. I never said that this tour was going to be about light food. You can already see that this doesn't look very light. It's basically a massive um, sweet bread, which is stuffed with um, sweet cream, okay, and it's called Maritozzo con panna. If you guys want to practice some Italian today, feel free to do that. Um, but it's called Maritozzo con panna. It is something that is extremely local from Rome. You only find this in Rome and the surrounding areas. And it's the best way to get some energy and calories in the morning. These cost like around one euros and 52 euros. Okay, and then it goes extremely well with cappuccino. And it's again, a very Roman thing. You get the maritozzo compana at Regoli with a big smile from Carlo and Laura and you will be very happy. It's gonna be a great start of the day. So what are the rules around cappuccino? I, I mean, can you, is it only in the morning or is there certain times in the day? 
that's really <laughs> amazing yeah, you asked that because this is exactly what I was going to talk about. So yeah, we do have some coffee rules in Italy. Uh, we have a lot of rules when it comes to food. Uh, for everything else, we don't care. For food, plenty of rules. Um, so basically, cappuccino is a morning drink only. So after 12 p.m., if you're ordering cappuccino, you're going to be labeled as tourist, 100%. Italians do not order cappuccino after 12 or after breakfast. Why is that? Because Italians have this weird thing that is like, okay, milk in the afternoon? No, we do not drink that. So it's only a morning thing and you can only, you can only order in the morning. I joke around my travelers all the time about this. Um, something else that is interesting is that espresso, it is an Italian word, obviously. Espresso means fast, essentially, but we don't say espresso in Italy. When we order espresso, we just say cafe, which obviously it's the word for coffee, right? So if you go to a bar and you ask un cafe, they're going to automatically give you espresso. So that is another interesting thing. If you feel like cappuccino later in the day, so you want something like cappuccino, you can order yourself a cafe macchiato. Macchiato comes from the word macchia, which means stain. So essentially a cafe macchiato is a coffee with a stain of milk in it. So it's essentially a baby cappuccino. So that is okay. Any time of the day. Cappuccino all until 12 p.m. in the morning. Okay. Um, what's next? Yes, I created a little Italian moment for you guys. So I want to teach you how to order um, your Roman breakfast in a Roman bar. Okay, I don't know if you want to play this game with me. If you want to mute your microphones and try to say this, I'm going to go very slowly. All but right. basically, yes, so we enter into this bar. This is one of my favorite bars. Um, and what we say in the morning, we say, buongiorno. Buongiorno. Very good. Very good. Buongiorno. Good morning. Okay, we want to order the maritozzo, the beautiful you know, pastry that I show you, and a cappuccino for breakfast. So we go like this. Un maritozzo. Angelo? Yeah, go for it. There we go. Un maritozzo. Molto bene. Very good. E? Eh? Un cappuccino. Un cappuccino. Per favore. Per favore. You're ready to go. You're ready to go <laughs> to Rome order your Roman breakfast. Perfect. Very good accent. I think you have very good potential. We can do this. <laughs> My Italian family uh, will be so proud uh, hearing this from, from you. I appreciate that. <laughs> it's not going to be the only Italian moment, so stay tuned for, for more Italian. But this is actually uh, really good in general to order food in general in Italy because you can ask, you can go to a restaurant, you can be like a buongiorno or buonasera, uh, una carbonara or una lasagna or you know, whatever you want, per favore at the end, it's going to make you look and sound extremely polite. And Italians go crazy for, 
you know, travelers that know a couple of words in Italian. I think this is a general rule anyways. If you speak by a couple of words of the local language, people grow nuts in general. So you will suddenly become friends with people. I can, you know, most of the time at least. So very nice. And uh, this is just a photo of me having, you know, a blast with my maritozzo con panna. Um, yeah, it was, it was a very happy morning uh, a couple of months ago. So it is real. I'm not just showing this, you know, just cause I actually do eat like that. So this is breakfast in Rome together. And this is close to the train station. So any questions about breakfast? So what time is breakfast usually? Because I know different countries have, you know, I mean, are we talking like early in the morning or I mean, it could really range depending upon, you know, lifestyle perhaps. Yeah, I would say like the most popular time um, to have breakfast, which is something that Italians can afford every single day because it's going to end up you costing you like around two euros and 50. If you get a croissant and cappuccino, it is very cheap in Italy. Um, you know, essentially it starts when people start going to work. So from 6 a.m. till 9 a.m., 9.30, you will have a lot of people at a bar. We call it bar. So you have, you're going to have so many people. And Italians do everything slowly, but breakfast, it's quick. So you're standing at a bar and you eat the, cup, you eat the croissant, the cornetto, and then you chug the cappuccino and then you leave right after. And then we will have multiple coffee breaks during the day. Coming from uh, an American Italian, you know, based family, I guess I, you know, food was always just so important. And, and I remember as a kid, almost at times being annoyed because I felt like it took forever, like for these dinners, like we'd have like Christmas Eve with the seven fishes or whatever. And I'd be a kid be like, whoa, is this like three days later? It's still the same day. Like you were saying, Italians do things a little slow, but uh, Patrick, you kind of. Uh, went the direction. I, I was curious. It seems like breakfast is a little bit more fast-paced in, in, in Italy, though, when everything else does seem to be a little bit more like family, like collective, like let's sit down and slow down and just talk kind of thing. If yeah, that's, that's exactly right. Uh, breakfast is not the most important meal of the day here in Italy. It's actually, even at home, like it's always sweet. We do not eat anything savory. If you put a slice of prosciutto or bacon in front of my dad, it's going to go nuts. It's going to go, what the hell is that? Um, so it's sweet and quick. Yeah, it is. Uh, and then, yeah, and then we go hard and heavy with lunch and dinner. Not every day, though. I just want to take this opportunity to say we do not eat like that every single day. It's just in special occasions. So, Stefano, the, uh, most of your shops, it seems that they're all mom and pop and historical and like you don't have these big chains there. You kind of, everybody goes to the mom and pop instead of uh, these big chain stores. Absolutely, yeah. We we had one Starbucks opening in Milan a couple of years ago, the first Starbucks opening in Italy ever. And uh, first of all, it doesn't look like a Starbucks at all because it's the fanciest Starbucks I ever seen. Uh, and secondly, there were, there were people that were protesting against you know, the opening of Starbucks, which by the way, took the concept from Milan anyways, because the founder of Starbucks went to Milan and was inspired by this bar and the coffee culture in Italy. He went back to the US and started Starbucks. So it is inspired to by Italy anyways. 
the problem is that Starbucks sells as a cappuccino for four or five dollars. Like, I don't know who would ever buy those in Italy because a cappuccino here costs one euro and 20. Uh, so, yeah. So, would change. be happy about that. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Why would you? So, yeah. So, this was for, for breakfast. Uh, if you guys want, I can take you to the city center altogether. We can talk about some interesting historical facts and have a snack right after. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Let's fly over Rome. So yeah, basically I highlighted this area in Rome. As you can see, we can do a nice 3D kind of view of Rome. Um, so this is the train station over here. This is the breakfast place where we were just um, standing. Um, as you can see, Rome historical center is pretty small, I would say. Like you can walk from the train station, the main train station, you likely going to get the train from uh, the airport to go to the city center. You can walk from the train station to the Colosseum. It's going to be a 20 minutes walk, not even. And then when you get to the Colosseum, you have all of this around it. This is the Colosseum. This is the Roman Forum. So all the Roman ruins. This is the Palatine Hills. This is the Circus Maximus. Um, this is basically the, um, the wedding cake, as the Americans called it when they came to Italy during the Second World War, which is that massive white monument uh, in Italy. Uh, you have the Pantheon here. So it's all around, like you're going to walk around and see a million things. Okay, um, very stunning. But I would like to take you to one specific place to talk about an interesting story. So we're going to Campo de Fiori right now. Okay, so this is Campo de Fiori, and this statue is a statue of Giordano Bruno. Um, Giordano Bruno that used to live in Italy in the 16th century. Um, the sentence that you read on the side, perhaps you pronounce a sentence against me with greater fear than I receive it, is connected to a very interesting story. Um, and pretty dark. Am I allowed to say something dark in this show? Yeah, it's okay. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, cool. So Giordano Bruno is a monk that basically, um, he became a monk in 1545 in Naples. Um, this was a time where uh, Europe was just coming out of, from the Council of Trent, Consiglio di Trento. Uh, what was it? For 17 years, the church basically gathered um, in this council to discuss how the future of the church was going to look like, because right before what happened was the Luther reformism. Um, so the reform by Martin Luther. Um, and so basically what happened was the church gathered for 17 years and discussed like what the church was going to due to gain back um, basically authority and also to get back to the roots of the religion because basically there was a lot of corruption and a lot of um, basically sin that was leading the church to lose basically the path um, of, uh, of what they were trying to, uh, to share in the world. So it was a time also where the Turks were invading Europe uh, from the east and they got all the way to Austria. 
So it was a time where there was a lot of, I can say, uh, cultural um, excitement and uh, reformation around the church, around the dogmas of the, you know, uh, of Christianity, of Catholicism. Um, Giordano Bruno was an extremely smart monk. He enrolled when he was just 17, but he already had this incredible knowledge of everything. He said that he knew all sciences. Uh, and it wasn't really an exaggeration. It was actually kind of true. Like he knew so much of everything. You have to think that back in the 16th century, uh, magic, science, alchemy, um, astronomy, astrology was all kind of like mixed together. It was kind of like very popular at that age. Um, and so when he enrolled as a monk, he started studying all of those things, uh, philosophy, all of this, and basically, um, he, he was basically in possession of a lot of books that he was not supposed to have, being a monk. And so, um, what happened was that he, in Naples, being a monk, started studying and studying and studying, and he came across Copernicus. And Copernicus says something like, uh, "You know what? The it's not not the whole universe goes around the Earth. It's actually the other way around." Uh, we're not that central. Um, he, Giordano Bruno took this level, took this, uh, you know, discovery, what Copernicus was saying to a whole new level. He started saying that the universe was infinite. And uh, actually, he started doubting the Holy Trinity. So he started literally um, going against the whole concept around Christianity, the earth, uh, the human, the humankind is not at the center of the universe. It's actually the other way around. And, and basically it was, he went against every Christian dogma ever at the point. And, uh, and he was also very, how can I say, he, did, he wasn't the most friendly person as well. So he started getting in contrast with everybody in the Catholic world. And uh, until it was finally um, basically put in, in a trial, it was uh, basically, um, you know, by the Roman Inquisition, the Roman Inquisition started telling him, you cannot say this kind of stuff. Like, this is going to basically ruin us all. Like, this is going to change the whole concept around uh, what we're trying to do over here. So he had an eight years trial where he tried to defend himself, uh, but eventually, uh, he decided not to go against what he discovered and what his belief was. And so basically he was um, pledged guilty in the 1600. And that's when exactly, and that's exactly when he said the sentence that we read, perhaps you pronounce a sentence against me with greater fear than I receive it. He knew that he could have been killed, but what he discovered was going to live for centuries. The change already happened. And so basically what happened to him, he was hanged upside down, okay? And, and he was naked and burned at a stake at right where the statue is today. And so today we had the statue in the middle of Campo de Fiori. You see how serious he is. The statue is looking right to the Vatican, okay? So it's directed to the Vatican. Um, and it's been there for over a couple hundred years. Um, the church wanted it to wanted to remove it uh, when Mussolini was in charge. Mussolini and his government decided that it was going to stay. And today, every single year, um, this statue and the story of Giordano Bruni is celebrated 
as a monument to you know freedom of speech and freedom of thought. So it is a very interesting story, very dark story. And the most interesting thing is that 90% of the tourists that go to the square completely ignore the story, which is actually very, very interesting. Uh, so I'm sorry for the little dark moment, but I think it was a, it, it's a, it is an interesting story. Quick question, Stefano. Um, while I'm thinking about it, I know that Rome has a lot of history in Christianity and a lot of diversity and, and so forth. But uh, And again, we all speculate that Rome is technically probably predominantly uh, Catholic. Um, do you still see any struggles between different denominations and so forth within Rome, or is it still uh, predominantly just followed the Catholicism? Um, Roman is, Rome is all about a Pope. Like people just, you know, uh, oh, he froze. You guys? We you can guys still hear you. Yeah, we're okay. Okay, sorry. <laughs> yeah. um, I think here around, you know, there is a very big difference between uh, what is religious and what is uh, the fate uh, around Catholicism and, and the Vatican as an institution. So um, the fate is all about, yeah, Catholics and all of that, but then the Vatican is seen as a, an economical power, an economical and political power. So you will often hear Romans talking about how corrupted everything is. Uh, but at the same time, that doesn't mean that there's, they're still not like, they still don't believe in, you know, the values that are carried on by the Vatican. So essentially, the, the, the religious part is preserved and is intact, even though youth, young people are losing so much interest in it. But the political and uh, financial side of it is definitely considered as, as not a good thing in general. Yeah. Because the Vatican is the biggest real estate owner in Rome. They own so many buildings. So they have so much power. The, the Vatican Bank um, basically is a separate institution from uh, the Italian government. So basically the Italian government cannot interfere in the Vatican's political and economical affairs. So people don't really have a great idea of that in general. Yeah. And I think I think the the real big takeaway is that you know just for example with this one statue i mean it dates back so far in history and there's a really great reason why things happened but it still connects to today and like you said they stand the test of time which is which is amazing i i actually yeah i really i really agree i agree with you yeah it's it is it would be nice if more people knew about it even italians uh, but the message is so powerful and these you stand in front of the statue in the square and it, it you can kind of feel it again you, you can feel this challenge posed by Giordano Bruno against the church he's still looking at the church proudly standing there with his ideas it's it's pretty cool it's really cool but also if we want to switch back to a more light you know, conversation, this is where, you know, a market is every single day. So you can come here and do some shopping, get some fresh vegetables and fruit and cheeses and truffles and all the things. So you put together like a very dark moment with an actually quite enjoyable moment as well. So after this, uh, this dark moment, I actually would like to get back to, to food if you guys are good with that. And I'm going to take you for a snack.
which actually it is not really a snack. It's much more than that. Uh, but I want to introduce you to um, basically the concept of forno. And uh, forno, let's go down to the streets of Rome. As you can see, everything is very close. Okay, this is all in the city center of Rome. This is called Via de Chiavari, the Chiavari, sorry. And, um, and basically this is a forno called Roscioli. This place, Roscioli, um, is very well known by all of the locals. Um, forno essentially means oven. Um, in Italy, forno is essentially a bakery that is specialized in savory stuff. So bread, pizza, all sort of savory stuff is, um, is in a forno. So it's not really a pizzeria, it's not really a bakery. It's basically a mix of stuff, but it is so good because essentially the forno sells fresh bread and fresh pizza every single day. So it's probably the best place to get a snack. So what you need to take to order in Forno Rocciolo as a morning snack, which is actually way more than a snack, is this kind of stuff over here. So this is pizza rossa. The pizza rossa is essentially the most perfect and iconic um, forno kind of product. It's a, a big like thing of pizza is it's thin and extremely crunchy. And the only thing that is on top of it is some tomato sauce and some olive oil, that's it. So basically you, when you bite this pizza, it's going to be so crunchy. You're gonna hear, you know, the crunchiness and the sound that comes out of it. And the tomato sauce is so rich and tasty that you won't need anything else on top of it. So it's gonna be so good. Um, another thing you should try is this pizza bianca with mortadella. Now, this is an interesting thing because you guys, how do you call this salami in the US? So we do have mortadella. And actually I just had that for lunch yesterday. I put it so, yeah, <laughs> delicious. Perfect. Because a lot of travelers that come on, on the trips, they actually call it Bologna, Bologna, okay. Bologna. Yeah. Uh, which essentially is a city, Bologna. Bologna is a city. And, and so uh, I feel like a lot of um, Italian dishes and products uh, got a kind of a funny name in the US, probably because of the Amer Italian American community and shaping the American culture so much. And so basically, yeah, they call it Bologna but here it's called mortadella and it's fresh and it's actually extremely cheap to buy it. And once again, the pizza rosa is a red pizza essentially. And this is a pizza bianca with mortadella. And it's one of the most, you know, traditional thing that you can get in Rome. It is so cheap. Like just a slice of pizza bianca costs you nothing. They wait it for you. And then you, they stop it with some mortadella. You, get, you can get one pound of mortadella for $2. Uh, it is very cheap and very light as well. Um, it is so good. It's really so delicious because once again, the pizza bianca is crunchy and a little salty. There is a little bit of olive oil in it. The mortadella is so tasty and flavorful and fresh and it is just a perfect snack. So you can get, my recommendation, go to Forno Rocciari, you get a little bit of pizza rosa, a little bit of pizza bianca with mortadella and you're going to have a, a, a great snack. So the way it works, yeah, they're gonna do, you tell them how much you want. Um, they're going to cut the slice depending on you know, your direction. They're going to put it on this um, little scales thing. So he is gonna tell you the weight 
okay? They waited for you and the target price, and then you just go crazy with it. So this is me having the best pizza bianca or mortadella this summer, and uh, I, you know, you don't hear or see anything when you're eating it because it's it's just the best snack, the best. You look, best. That photo you look, is fantastic. I like. I know. Man, I've never seen somebody more in the moment just I'm being dead serious like more in the moment just enjoying what they're doing like I love it man that's awesome <laughs> you can come to Rome and I'll take the same photo of you doing that yeah no it's it's it is really high feels it really, it's perfect right now man I feel like you talk about food in episodes that we don't even have food presented to us how are you feeling right now man Oh, it's, it's, you know, it's just want to go downstairs and get it for right after this presentation because it's like, okay, now that I'm talking about it, like, yeah, I kind of want it now. It's, it's, it's kind of good. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I do too, but I'd have to take a flight. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, uh, you should work from home, move to Italy, and then work from home from Italy. Uh, <laughs> Something else you should try in Rome when you go to a forno or, you know, the pizza battle slice place, which we call Pizzeria Al Taglio, which is another thing which is extremely popular in Rome and not everywhere else in Italy, um, is to try the fried appetizer that we have here in Rome. Um, fritti. Fritti just means fried. And uh, fritti is basically, uh, you know, the name of the category, okay? So in Rome, they make three things that are very typical from here. They have the supli, the fiore di zucca, and the baccala fritto. Let's start from the bottom one. The baccala fritto is codfish fried, okay? Fried codfish. Fiore di zucca is the zucchini flour um, that is basically stuffed with some mozzarella, a little slice of anchovy, and fried lightly in the outside. And uh, I know that some, like a lot of Americans don't really do well with anchovies, but here is a big thing. It's a big deal. Um, and so please, basically tomato rice, um, similar to Arancino, that is from Sicily though. So it's tomato rice made into a ball. There is a slice of mozzarella, fresh mozzarella in the middle, and then it's fried outside. So what happens is you fry it, the mozzarella inside melts, and it creates kind of like a telephone kind of effect. So you cracked it in the middle, the mozzarella is going to melt, and it's going to create kind of like a telephone situation, which looks like this. Exactly like this. Yeah, that's. I, I'm sure Angelo loves this one as well. <laughs> He's into food, and so... And it's so good. And it costs you like one euro to, to, eat this, to buy this stuff. So it's, um, it's really perfect. So, so what I'm noticing is, and I guess, you know, I'm, I'm looking at the, it's the same shirt that you had on in the last photo. So this was one heck of an awesome day. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was, uh, it was those day where, uh, it was a very good colleague of mine. Um, nice. she came to Rome and she's like, okay, I'm going to take some photos of you. It's like, okay, damn, I'm going to eat all the food today because we need photos of food exactly for this purpose. So, yeah. It was a lot of food that, that day, but you can't complain about that. <laughs> oh, absolutely not. I, I Sign me up anytime. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so so good stuff, good stuff. Like this is just a morning snack, but it was, uh, it was important. So this is actually 
the Fornado Sholi, I actually think I can show you how it looks like uh, from, where did it go? Yeah, from inside, um, yes. So this is basically what you look at when you get inside of it. Um, so these are all of the pizzas. You see that this is the scale that I was showing you earlier. So again, these are the knives because they're gonna cut the kind of pizza like the slice of pizza you want. And then over here, they have all of that, <laughs> all of the fresh bread, all of the fresh different kind of you know uh, pies and stuff. So it's literally a, a carb word, a car, uh, a carb amusement park. It's it's so good. It's delicious. But I mean, this is the thing that, and I always tell friends and colleagues and students, especially, like you have to go out and travel. Uh, I mean, among all the other reasons, but in particular, getting to know the food, I mean, really allows you to connect with a country and a culture and its people. And I mean, like you said, you have so many opportunities, especially in Italy, and, in, and to, to have these experiences. And you're going to learn so much about, yes, the food itself, but you're going to meet some amazing people. You're going to learn so much history. And it's, it just broadens your perspective completely. It is very true what you're saying because the food specialties that you see in different regions of Italy uh, are related to the specialties that are present in the area. We're going to see now like some, uh, like a very special Roman dish that is made with artichoke. And uh, you can only, I'm going to tell you about how you can only make this dish in Rome because the special kind of artichoke that they need is an artichoke that has no spines. It's pretty smooth and has a different kind of texture and everything. And so it allows you to make the specific dish that you're going to find in Rome. Uh, maybe in uh, Sicily, they're going to make you a uh, cannolo, which is basically one of the most popular Italian desserts, which once again, is not an Italian dessert, it's a Sicilian dessert. Um, and why is that? Because the, the ricotta, which they use to fill the cannolo is fresh and they use the crumble pistacchio that comes from, uh, um, from um, Bronte, which is a town in Sicily. So we're talking about local products that are excellent and a tradition that makes that dish perfect and extremely tasty in that region uh, because it comes from that region. Um, so, so what you're saying makes a lot of sense. It's food after all is just the connection point with culture, uh, local culture, yeah. I find what you're saying interesting too about the regional stuff and how um, you, almost like proximity or region like limits what you can limits what you can do or at least like the potential of it. I have a friend who actually just opened a pizza shop in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, where I'm from. He's from New York, and he claims that there's something behind this, but I don't know what it is. There's like the water in New York. I don't know if you any of the guys on the show know this. Apparently, the water in New York is different or better. He gets water shipped in from New York to Pittsburgh to make the dough and the, the mozzarella and all that kind of stuff. That's how specific he is. And hearing you say this, I always thought he was crazy, but now I guess it makes a little bit more sense. Yeah, it, it actually does make a lot of sense. Like that's the same reason why Neapolitans say that coffee is um, the best coffee in Italy is in Naples, which I agree with by the way because of the water as well. So you get an espresso in Napoli, and it's going to be 
the taste of cof coffee in Naples is just, I don't know, I don't know how, but they say it's, it's water. And Napoli is also the city of, of pizza, where pizza was invented. And once again, they're saying the same thing about that because of the water um, that they have is, is just much better. Um, I don't know how much of that is like 100% true, but it definitely shows you, yeah, this connection between the, the food and the local products. Yeah. But it's definitely also passion, right? It's passion for the quality of the food and, and the history and the culture and everything that goes with it, right? So it's not just good enough to, you know, turn on the sink here and, and get water. I want to be authentic because I, I, yeah. I enjoy this and I want to give you a taste of what it's, it's really like. So I believe it. <laughs> yeah, passion makes it, makes you give you like 200% of what you're doing. It's like, obviously the product, like, you know the product they the food that you're gonna try is going to taste very different when you see like Rosholi as well just like um Regoli, the first place i show you these are places that have been doing this for decades and decades and decades like generations um that have been carrying on this art and obviously even something as simple as bread can be mas mastered and brought to a whole new level especially right now where you know, pizza, for example, and all those products, they literally bringing it to a whole new level of quality. They're shipping in the best products, the best ingredients to make the best thing. Pizza's turning into a gourmet kind of uh, dish now. So it's it's really cool. Yeah, passion makes it. Real quick on the pizza. I just want to ask this because it's a question I've been thinking about since you've started talking. I figure now's the time to ask it. Uh, you know, in, in, in America, there's New York style pizza. It's a little bit thinner, Chicago style, thicker, deep dish, right? Is there a, like an, a, a specific approach in Italy, like in terms of like the crust, like, is there like a preferred one? Um, there's arguments all the time in the States between like deep dish and what is it f in Italy? What is like the preferred like crust method, I guess? <laughs> um yeah i'm pretty aware of the pizza situation in 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 the u.s the detroit style the dip dish i used to live in chicago i actually love the dip dish uh new york style which looks very similar to the roman style so in 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 italy we have mostly the napolitan pizza which is clearly the the, the queen of all pizzas because they invented it and it's you know the traditionally um you know looking kind of pizza with a big crust around and everything and in rome there is a kind of pizza that is very different which i'm in love with which is a thin crust super crunchy kind of pizza um and um and it's much lighter and it's there is not that much stuff on it so it's much lighter thing uh in naples Naples, the food in Naples and in the south of Italy is much heavier in general, just as a tradition, as, as a culture, there is a lot of fried stuff, there is a lot of ingredients that go on it. Uh, on a Napolitan pizza, you can find so many different ingredients, but it's delicious because if you get like a margherita Napoli in Napolitan style, it's going to be very good. If you go to Palermo in Sicily, they have something that is called sfincione, which is a very thick kind of sort of like pizza, which has like kind of like a layer of tomato and other ingredients on top. In Milan too, in Milan too, they have a very thick kind of pizza. So basically every region too has its own pizza, but essentially I would say that the Roman and the Napolitan are probably the predominant ones. Yeah.
All right. Any other questions about this? Should we move on? Yeah, andiamo. Andiamo to the next one. We're going to to go to actually a pretty interesting part of Rome, which is once again is very close to all of the areas that we saw so far. So this was Giordano Bruno's statues where it was. This is where the Rocholi Forno is. Um, this is basically where um, Julius Caesar was killed. Uh, Largo di Torre Argentina is uh, basically an archaeological area. And here we are here in the Jewish ghetto of Rome. Okay, so the Jewish ghetto of Rome, I wanted to, you know, stare back from, you know, stay away for a second from, uh, from the food and talk for a second about history. So basically, and talk about the story of the word uh, ghetto. Where do you think the word ghetto comes from? Dennis, how many guesses? <laughs> yes, from Venice. So you see this sign that you see over here, Ghetto Vecchio, yeah? So this is basically from the Venice um, Jewish ghetto, which is the oldest ghetto in the world that has over 500 years. This 500 years old. So ghetto in old Venetian language uh, basically means copper foundry. Uh, the area where the Venetian Republic decided to move all of the Jewish community, the Jewish people in, that were present in Venice. You have to think that Venice back in the days was a multicultural, multinational, you know, kind of city. Like they, they were a trading power, one of the biggest trading power in the known world back in the days. And so people from all over the known world would live in Venice. You would have Germans, Eastern Europeans, uh, Jews, Arabs, everybody would live in Venice. So it was big Jewish community uh, that was scattered, like it was starting to grow a lot of power so that the Venetian Republic at a point decided to put them all in the same area, which is where um, the copper foundries were. Um, and the copper foundries were called ghetto, okay? So the thing that happened was that um, a lot of the Jewish uh, community couldn't say the word um, ghetto. Um, they couldn't pronounce it, so they would call it ghetto. And from ghetto, uh, we basically went to have the word ghetto. So it was basically this transition, this changing thing that led us from, from a word that has nothing to do with what nowadays ghetto means to, to the word ghetto. So essentially, yeah, um, where the, the copper fringes were in Venice was a Jewish community over 500 years ago. Another word that comes from, from Venice that is actually very popular today is quarantine. Uh, so the word quarantine comes from, from Venice uh, and essentially this comes from uh, one of the plague uh, waves that hit Venice. Back in the days, what happened was that the Venetians to stop the spread um, decided that all of the ships that were coming from abroad from the Venetian Republic would have to wait 40 days outside of the Venetian Republic. After this 40 days, once they made sure that nobody was carrying the plague inside of the city, they could enter the city. So 40 in Italian, uh, we say 40. 40 turns into quarantena. And quarantena is the same word that you guys use, quarantine. So basically quarantine comes from the 40 days where the ships, that the ships had to wait to get into the city. 
So that's another interesting fact. Um, but why are we talking about this? We're talking about this because the Jewish ghetto in Rome um, basically has shaped massively the food in Rome. This used to be the Jewish ghetto in Rome. As you can see, it was an enclosed area with gates and everything. If you go to Venice, you can actually still see the signs of the gates that were used to shut to shut off like the whole ghetto. Same stuff in Rome. The popes decided that they were going to basically enclose the Jewish community in this area. And uh, so we're talking about a present that has been, you know, living in Rome for centuries and centuries. And what it did is that they, you know, massively influenced the Roman food. And so today I want to take this Ritter restaurant, um, which is called Sola Margherita, which is a restaurant, is one of the most popular restaurants um, that offer you a Jewish Roman cuisine, which is something that you need to try when you go to Rome. So Sora Margherita has been open for around 100 years. It is this little shop that you see over here. It's super pretty, super little. You need to reserve in advance. The menu is handwritten. Um, and they sell, like they basically serve you the most typical Roman Jewish uh, kind of um, meals. Okay, so this was our table. Actually, this is the owner, which has this, uh, you know, purple hair. So she's, she's really cool. And, you know, um, you know, kind of like older generation, no, you know, pretty straightforward. Do you, what do you want? What do you need? Okay, you can put a table over here. The cool thing about COVID in Italy is that now every restaurant is allowed to put a table outside. So basically, the, you can see tables all over the place. This was our table right in front of a 1600 uh, church, and she was serving us that day. Um, and basically, yeah, what you need to try when the, the king of the Jewish Roman cuisine is this thing, which is the Jewish style artichoke, carciofo alla Judea. As I was telling you earlier, this is a specific kind of artichoke um, that is again, smooth, no spines and everything. And basically what happens is that they drop it into, you know, a pan full of oil, they fry it, they fry it twice actually. Because you fry it in the first time that you let it rest and getting cold and then you fry it again. So it gets extremely crunchy. It's a whole artichoke that gets fried and it gets served just like that, like an open flower, like that. And the way to eat it, you just peel off, you know, the peels and you just eat them like chips. And it's so, so delicious. It's really delicious because it's artichoke, but it's crunchy and tasty. It's pretty salty. And so it's really, really nice. It is something, you know, that one of those moments that put together culture and food and taste and, and everything. So it's, a, it's an immersive experience that I really think you should try when you get to Rome. So now we're having another Italian moment. So who wants to try to order a Jewish artichoke in Rome and a glass of wine? I think you're on deck, Dennis. Oh, wow, thank you. <laughs> I'll give it a try. Give it a try, don't worry. So we're okay. going to be very polite now. We're not sure what time of the day it is. So we don't say good morning, we just say a polite hello. So we say salve. Salve. Very good. Then we gotta say this, un carciofo. Un calciato. Alla giudia. Alla giudia. Very good. E. E. Un bicchiere. Un bicchiere. Divino. Divino. 
rosso o bianco? Wow, I can't roll the tongue. Rosso, bianco? <laughs> per favore. Per favore. <laughs> actually, very good. Bravissimo. Molto bene. Very nice. I am actually also an Italian teacher. Your accent is really, really good. Oh, really good job. Very good. <laughs> well, you just order yourself a Jewish artichoke and a glass of white and red wine, please. So not only you order it, you were also very polite and uh, very good job. Molto bravo, bravissimo. Um, and this is once again pretty useful to order anything really in a restaurant. People will love you if you try to do this. Okay. So, um, oh, this is something else that. As you know, this is basically where you have your lunch in Sora Margherita, you have your lunch, but then for dessert, if you don't stay at Sora Margherita, you go to this place, which is, uh, you know, it looks like a random building, but it's actually a bakery. It's called Pasticceria Boccione, and it's, it has the most delicious pie with sour cherry and ricotta. This, it is unbelievably delicious, and it's once again, a huge Roman Jewish um, kind of dish, and you need to try it. So let me show you where these places physically are, because they're very close to each other. So basically, Sora Margherita, we we're talking about, oh, let me see. So Google Street View is blocked for, for some reason. Let me see, well, I put this right over here, so that's good. Um, so Bocione, this is this is a bakery, like right here. Like you would never know if you didn't know in advance. As you can see, like in these, you can can you see this building? Can you see that there is something written on it? These yeah, is like vaguely. yeah, this are these are hundreds of years old uh, Roman, um, you know, uh, inscriptions from the Roman Empire that were enclosed in the building. And, um, and you can still see it on the actual facade of this building. This is actually the main street of uh, the Jewish ghetto. Over here, you're going to have, um, there's going to be like a, a beautiful temple from the Roman time. Um, and all of the streets, like you have restaurants that have tables on the street. And so it's really fun to, to walk by. Like you have a meal in here that you get the, uh, the pie over here. And Sora Margherita is actually just around the corner. Um, let me see if it's showing us. Well, let me see if I can get there. Yes, this is the restaurant I was showing you. Um, okay, much prettier over here. So now you can see it and now you can actually recognize where our table was in the photo. It was right in front of this church over here. Uh, and, and so the bakery is right here. The restaurant is right here. And so, yeah, it is very much recommended to do both things to have the dessert and um, and uh, and the rest and have like a meal in the in the restaurant Sola Margherita. So very good, very good. Do you have any questions on uh, on the Jewish Roman cuisine? Uh, I just a comment. I mean, it looks delicious. <laughs> I mean, it looks fantastic. And I I think the big the big thing that I've noticed and and. You know, as you talk about your tours, either virtually or in person, I mean, I seem to recall, I mean, there's always a lot of walking. And I think, is that done purposely? Because you would never know this unless you're not spending the time kind of walking through these lands, these city streets, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, 
it is on purpose. So yeah, you feel yeah. you don't feel that bad when you, you actually eat all of this stuff. Yeah. <laughs> you, yeah, yeah walking is not one of my favorite things, but I guess I'd have to go by the saying that uh, when in Rome, do as the Romans do. But uh, yeah, it, it again, I could see why you could eat all this food because you're burning all these calories uh, walking from place to place. So yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You can, uh, you know, you can have one big meal per day when you visit Italy. For lunch, you can just go to the local shop and get yourself like some prosciutto, some bread. You know, you can get a beer and drink it on the street. And that's cool. Like in Italy, you can do that too. You can actually, you know, drink on the street. You can have a, a nice picnic in a park. So stay light for lunch and have, having like a proper meal for dinner. Uh, but one thing that is very important I would like to say too is that the good thing about Italian food, I think, is that because the ingredients are always so fresh, at the end of the day, uh, unless you're ordering something very heavy, um, it is actually quite light, quite doable. You know, it is not that stuff in like so many ingredients, like like few ingredients, but they're really high quality. So you can enjoy a, a nicer, bigger meal, but without getting too crazy. Yeah. I guess I was going to ask that question again. I, I was thinking about that, that uh, it seems that everything is fresh from markets and so forth. And uh, you're not into the frozen uh, chicken patties and the beef patties and all that. So the frozen food industry probably doesn't do well in Italy. Um, but I, I would say that more, it seems like everything's fresh. So that would be really healthy and, and good. It is. Yeah, it is. It is kind of like our, it isn't in our mentality for many, many years. And I'm talking about also, you know, before the Second World War and right after in the 60s, the 70s, families weren't that wealthy anyway. So there is like this kind of economy that relies on community, right? So everybody, you know, you live next to me, I'm going to give you some ricotta and you give me some bread and uh, I'll make some uh, you know, some fresh pasta for you and you give me some of your apples or some of your vegetables. So when we were little, we would go visit our grandma, which lives in a very small town, uh, 1000 people, and she would give us all of the fresh ingredients that came from her garden, the fresh pasta that she would make, she would give us the fresh eggs. So it is, yeah, it is really, really a big part of our culture to just get fresh stuff like we, yeah frozen food is a huge no-no here yeah absolutely all right we are um let me know if with timing we're good but we have two more stops and then we're going to be done with the tour but basically we're going to have another little break historical break we're going to go to piazza navona so get yourself ready put your belt on we're going to fly over the city center again and go to Piazza Navona. So you see the shape of Piazza Navona is uh, very unusual. Uh, it looks like a ship in a way. And once again, we're very close to everything. Um, you know, it's everything is so close. This is the wedding cake that I was telling you about. The Americans call it like that. Uh, the American soldiers, when they enter Italy in the Second World War, uh, they were coming from the south to the north to free the country to get to Rome. The side was like, oh, this looks like a wedding cake. So that's one of the nicknames today is the wedding cake uh, or the typewriter. 
And uh, the Pantheon is right here, the most, in my opinion, the most impressive monument that came uh, to us from the Roman Empire. But Piazza Navona too is, is another incredible square because underneath the Piazza Navona, it hides the ruins of uh, one of the oldest um, stadiums that we have in Rome, which is a Domitian Stadium that was built in the 86 AD. And it would host up to 30,000 people. And uh, it had this beautiful um, shape. And today, this front part that you see over here, we still have some ruins of that. You can actually go underneath the square and visit a 2,000 years old Roman stadium in the square, which is pretty nuts, to be honest, because, I mean, they didn't even know that like they found out there's like a, over like a hundred years ago when they were rebuilding the square yet to think that around 90 percent of rome according to national geographic of imperial rome uh, the rome that was built two thousand years ago was built um is, is still underneath um the city that we see today why is that because you see over here there's the tiber river okay the tiber river uh, still floods, you know, pretty often today. Uh, back in the days, it would flood constantly. And so basically the city kept rising on the level because otherwise it would kept, you know, flooding all the time. So basically all of the Roman, the Rome that was built 2000 years ago is underneath. And so they keep finding stuff all the time, which is quite fascinating. Um, but let me, let's go down to the square because I want to show you you know, a little bit, one interesting story, and that has not to do with food, but it has to do with a rivalry between two architects. Uh, so you see this church over here. So this is uh, Santa Nisi Nagone, and this is the fountain of the Four River that was built by Bernini. So Bernini Borromini, the architects of this church. This is an original Egyptian obelisk. The Romans, when they conquered Egypt, they brought into Rome like plenty of Egyptian obelisk as a war trophy. Today we have around 13 Egyptian obelisks that stand in you know Rome squares. And Rome is actually the city in the world that has the most Egyptian obelisks, which is crazy because we're not even in Egypt. Um, and so what happens is that uh, there was a rivalry, an allegedly rivalry, not allegedly, actually, it was a massive rivalry between these two architects. These were battling, they were battling uh, during the Rome of the Popes. Once again, we have Bernini and Borromini, these two guys that were battling to get commission from the Vatican. And so one interesting fact is that it looks like, well, the legend says that Bernini built this fountain over here. You see this man, it kind of looks like he's looking at the, at the church and is like, oh my God, this is going to collapse on me because it was built by my enemy and he doesn't know what he's doing. And so basically they say, the legend says that um, Bernini did that on purpose just to upset his opponent Borromini, which built this church. Uh, Borromini, the legend said that he built this, uh, you know, Virgin Mary over here to reassure the Romans, don't worry, nothing is going to collapse. Uh, they say that this is not entirely true, it's just a legend, uh, but it's kind of funny because these two guys were rivals. Actually, one of the stories is that Borromini built a massive, um, I'm sorry if I say this word, but he built a massive penis on top of the building 
where I was living because this building was facing a building that Bernini was building. And so it's like, he was living there. He was like, okay, now I'm going to show this guy what I think about him. And he built this massive marble penis just to upset him. And in response, Bernini built two donkey ears made of marbles again to tell him, oh, you donkey, which in Italian means you an idiot. Um, and then the Roman church told them, okay, enough with this stuff, grow up, get rid of the statues because they don't do any good to the decency of the city. So <laughs> it is interesting facts. And this stuff happened, to be honest, this stuff happened um and these two were were actual rivals but to get back to um just to comment real quick like i living in 2021 people argue now on social media with like no value at all right back back then look at what they created like in their arguments it's even when italians or those in the region would fight they still did beautiful things it's amazing it's amazing yeah and i agree with you um it it, it puts you a big smile on your face is like look at this guy it's like they're battling but look at what they're building like it's it's unbelievable it's really unbelievable the city is so packed with beautiful stuff that you're like oh my god there's another church over here i, I cannot so just i had enough like it's too many like too much uh well to get back to to our food uh, focus i was just gonna say all right you know this beautiful story and the beautiful rivalry, why don't we drink a Negroni in front of it? And we just, you know, elaborate a new theory about this rivalry uh, by getting one of the most typical Italian drinks. This is a Negroni we got in a bar next door. We having an aperitivo or an aperitivo is something that happens around 6, 7 p.m. in the afternoon, you get a drink. This is Negroni, once again, one of the strongest one because that's Campari, gin, and vermouth. So you get a couple of these, you're going to be flying and you're going to turn into an architect yourself. Um, but aperitivo is like something that is very nice because when you order aperitivo in Italy, most of the places, the majority of the places, you get served some free food as well. Uh, either you get served food or there's a buffet that you can go and get some food. Normally you spend around 10 euros and with 10 euros you get the drink and the food. This is a famous place in Manarola in the Cinque Terre and they make this for aperitivo. So basically you're not paying for this food, you're just paying for the drinks. Uh, these come as a complimentary thing. And no, we don't tip in Italy. This is just done out of, um, out of um, you know, hospitality. So that's, that's how it works. Um, so yeah, so this is an aperitivo that you can have actually in the, in the Piazza Navona. This would be a great place for aperitivo. Um, and by the way, one other interesting fact, this square back in the 17th century, 18th century, uh, used to be turned into a pool. Uh, it used to be uh, basically uh, built in a, in a shape that would allow, you know, the, 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 the authorities to fill it up with water. And it became kind of like a public pool where people would go and jump in. Then they were like, okay, this is not that healthy and not that, that good for people's health so we're just going to build over this and never allow that ever again so so yeah it's an interesting it's an interesting thing um have you been to this square have you been to rome i actually so bad at this like i i should have asked if you ever been to rome have you ever been to rome oh no okay no i have not this has been really great <laughs> i know patrick has he's invited me many times but keeps getting put off 
I've never been invited, nor have I ever been there. For clarity. <laughs> I think you like it. You like it. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, we have one more stop. It's actually going to be the surprise of the day to end this. You know, virtual four with you guys. If you have, a, if you don't have any other questions, just going to jump to the next final stop of the tour, um, and that's going to be. Yeah, that's going to be dinner at Casa Mia, dinner uh, at my house. So basically, yeah, in November, I got the chance to spend like a couple of months in this beautiful location in Rome. Um, this was the place where we were staying. Uh, we had our own personal church. We were staying in these two little windows over here. There's a little apartment that we rented out, me and my girlfriend. And, um, and basically, we had this stunning view every day. Out here in the corner is one of the best gelato places in Rome, but I'm inviting you at my place because there is one thing that is missing from this presentation, and that is a dish that I'm going to ask you if you recognize it. What is it? It involves egg, some... Uh, hmm. I don't, I, my poor guess would be uh, some type of Alfredo, but I, I think I'm, I'm way off. <laughs> so this is carbonara pasta. Ah. <laughs> pasta carbonara, and this is something, this is the queen of the Roman cuisine. Like you need to try carbonara when you get to Rome, um, because it's, it's, it's just, if you're going to ever order carbonara, don't do it anywhere else in Italy. This is one of these dishes that you want to order in Rome and just in Rome. Okay. So I decided instead of taking you a place, I'm going to teach you how to make it. Okay. So get ready for it. Basically we have a few rules about carbonara and these are going to be very strict rules. Use guanciale. Guanciale comes from the word guancia, which is cheek. So pork cheek, it's a very fatty part of the pork. It tastes kind of like pancetta, but more greasy and much better. And, uh, and so you need to use guanciale. That is the only kind of meat that you should be using to make traditional carbonara. Pecorino Romano cheese only. It's way more salty, way more tasty, and it goes extremely perfectly well with this recipe. Absolutely no garlic nor onion. There is not, this is not a thing. You don't put garlic in a carbonara. Do not ever use cream, never. If you want to make, you know, if you want to test, if you want to make a test, you go to any restaurants are all around the world, Italian restaurant, even in Italy, you ask them, how do you make carbonara? If they tell you that they use cream, just don't order it. They're not doing it right. It is no cream. You do not, you do not put cream in carbonara. The Romans would get so upset. They would basically get more mad if you offended their mother, okay? Um, vegan carbonara, yeah, not a thing. I mean, I, I'm all about keeping it vegan and everything, but carbonara, if you're ordering it, there is not such a thing as vegan. You just gonna accept the fact that it's a very meaty dish. Spaghetti, bucatini, or rigatoni, they're all good, all good shapes. Um, but tagliatelle, egg pasta, probably not, because there's already a lot of egg in this pasta, so you don't wanna put some more egg in the pasta. So, what kind of ingredients do we need? We need the guanciale, 
the Pecorino Romano, which is on top over here, guanciale, which is exactly how it looks over here, this beautiful fatty, you know, piece of meat, eggs, and black pepper. That's all you need to make it. What do we do? We crack the egg, okay? The norm normally, I, you know, if it's, if I'm making carbonara for all of us, guys, and I would probably do that if you guys were in Roma, you were my guests, I would probably make your carbonara. I would use four eggs because we're four plus one, okay? So four plus one, and I would just get the yolk of the, of the egg, put it in a little, you know, kind of like, um bowl and then basically start stirring, stirring it around a little bit then i would add a lot of pecorino cheese a lot of pecorino cheese what happens is that it becomes very creamy at that point because the cheese with the yolk of the, of the egg combines together and it becomes very creamy you add the black pepper to this mix and you're gonna have something like this okay this is the cream that comes out for the carbonara. This is why I was telling you, you do not put carbonara, you do not put cream, because this is what is going to come out. It's gonna be very thick, okay, very thick. When you are cooking the pasta, okay, you finish cooking the pasta and make sure it's al dente. So if it has like 10 minutes cooking time, at eight minutes or even seven minutes, you start tasting it. If it's pretty hard, you know, hard but not not as you know rock solid it has to be hard al dente so you know good consistency you take it out you take out the pasta you add a couple of spoons of the water they use to cook the pasta you add it in this mix and then you throw the pasta in it and you start mixing all together the guanciale you made it on a side you made a guanciale on the side, you don't put any oil in the pan, you just cut it in slices, put it in the pan. The, the fat of the guanciale is going to melt and that's going to be the oil that um, you're going to add to the recipe. So again, carbonara cream, you add pasta with a couple of spoons of the water that you use to cook the pasta, stir it around that you put over the crunchy guanciale, okay? And then basically you're going to have this beauty ready. Okay, crunchy guanciale and pasta al dente. The guanciale needs to be crunchy when you bite it. So you're gonna have pasta al dente, the crunchy guanciale, which are very strong flavors, is going to meet the pepper and the pecorino romano. And this is going, to, then you will really need to walk around Rome for a couple hours to burn it because that's gonna be a very heavy meal and definitely recommend it to have it for lunch and not for dinner because it's going to be hard to sleep on that thing. And that's it, guys. I'm sorry it took a little longer than, than we uh, expected, but uh, yes, this was the food tour of Rome, eternally hungry in the Eternal City and, uh, and nothing. I hope you liked it. Well, you know, I'm going to obviously get to your final thoughts here, but I mean, this is a, for me, and I think it typifies, you know, exactly what your spirit and your passions are, Stefano, is because, you know, we went through all this amazing stuff and still at the end, like you said, the fact that you invited us into your home and shared a meal with us, you know, something that's special and unique to you, I think typifies, you know, that, that experience that I, I really would hope everybody who has the opportunity to travel gets to experience sometime, you know, in their lifetimes, because again, it's that, that is what you experience in Italy or wherever you travel, I believe. Um, 
it's it's something like you said is, is truly special and you know i definitely want to thank you uh for for closing in this fashion oh thank you so much for giving me a chance and so fine. Absolutely. So for our audience, uh, tell us how they can continue to stay connected with you and your company, I Fred Italia. And, you know, like you said, so that they can experience either a virtual tour or, you know, when things do open up, come to Italy and travel with you. Yes, absolutely. So uh, thank you, by the way. Um, so we launched our website. It's called www.i4italia.com. And uh, right now we're offering virtual tour uh, demo. So basically they're shorter presentation where we give an idea of what we can do. Um, right now we're going to have uh, every weekend we have a couple of tours. These weekend I'm going to host uh, Italia Dreaming, which is kind of like a tour that takes you around Italy to some hidden spots and experiences. And we're going to have another tour that talks about Piedmont and Lombardy, which are two regions that are full of wine and tasty stuff and walks around Lake Como. And so it's going to be very cool. But then everyone can request like a customized made uh, virtual tour where we can explain how to enjoy Italy uh, at the best of its possibilities. So a virtual tour can be either, you know, a corporate event kind of thing or a family thing or an educational tour but it can also be taken as a way to plan your next real tour to Italy, uh, a place to learn and discover about Italy's, you know, authentic tradition and food and locations. And it is a way for us to show, you know, a way for us and for everyone that is interested to learn about places that are not going to be that crowded. I think after all, after all that is happening, I think that travel will go through more towards I kind of travel that is, you know, based on less crowded places where you can actually enjoy the places and not being stuck with another million people. So this is exactly our purpose is to share Italy um, in the most unknown places. So we can do virtual tours. We're going to probably launch exper virtual experiences as well. Um, and then, uh, and then yes. And then one day when we will be able to travel, we will be very happy to, personalize the tour for everyone that is interested in Italy. Sorry about that. Dennis and Angela, final thoughts uh, from your perspective. Well, I'll tell you what, I, um, I was excited about going to Italy when I was invited uh, to go with the school last year, but it got canceled. And now I'm even more excited for an opportunity to go in the future. So uh, you've really brought it alive for me and I appreciate that. And I want to thank you for your hospitality. And I want to thank you for taking the time to uh, just share with us. Um, again, it's just, I, I found it very interesting. Uh, uh, so I'm looking forward to the day that I get the opportunity to come meet you in person and to actually enjoy one of your tours or your, your entire tour of Italy. So thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Come anytime and uh, I will be here with my colleagues as well because it's a team of four people for now and uh, we'll, I'll take you to all of those places. We're going to have all of those things. You're going to take the same picture that I took with my pizza and with my uh, supply. <laughs> yeah, and I also just want to thank you for taking the time and doing this. I think that just what you're doing is really cool and impressive considering the the climate and the world that we're living in with the restrictions um I, I i think that it's important to still like um show others like the culture 
and and even if you can't physically get there, that that I, I feel like I needed this. I needed to get out of like this office that I've been stuck in so long, even if it's virtually, to see this and to talk to somebody authentically about it. So thank you for that. And I would just like to very quickly just to know for my own purposes. One, what is your favorite thing to eat in Rome? Um, I know you talked about a lot of things, but what is your favorite thing to eat? And then I also want to know what your favorite wine is, like a red, a white, a Riesling, you know, Merlot. Uh, what is it? What are those two for you? <laughs> Thank you for the question. Um, my favorite thing to eat in Rome is definitely pizza by the slice. Um, so essentially, it's, it's just it's something that I could eat every single day at every single moment of the day and i would be happy pizza butter's life the cool thing about it is that you can you know order a different kinds like four different kinds take little slices and it's just the most perfect tasty treat that you can eat all day long so that is definitely something that uh, i love to eat in rome because it's not present in other cities other cities has pizzeria but they don't have pizza by the slice you can just walk in and get your slice of pizza in Rome, you walk in, it's like, okay, I would like a little bit of this, a little bit of that, and let me try a little bit of that too. One split, one Coke, you pay five euros, you leave satisfied and happy. Sit on the square, maybe you get a beer from a grocery store, you eat it and drink a beer while standing in front of a 17th century church. Life is good, life is really good. Uh, I really love that. As for wine, personally, I'm a big, big fan of uh, red wine. Um, my favorite wine is a Tuscan wine, but it's not one of the most famous one. It's called Bulgari wine. So it's um, basically comes from the little town of Bulgari. Um, and uh, it is just so, so good. Um, but a couple of weeks ago, I got a chance to go to the Prosecco region, which is north of Venice. And uh, we got to try so many Proseccos. And there's a whole region where they all produce Prosecco. And uh, honestly, that is really good too. It's like bubbles, it's bubbly white wine. It goes perfectly with everything. And I had Prosecco for the new year. That's what, that is what I had here for the new year. It was, it was amazing too. So that actually the Prosecco is going to be part of my Italia dreaming toward the Sunday. I'm going to, to have a little parenthesis, like a little thing about the Prosecco region because it's so stunning and it's so fun. You just drive around, you stop in all the canteens like, hey, let me try your Prosecco. You're like, sure, go for it. And you try a bunch of it. And it's, uh, so yeah, Bulgari and uh, Prosecco is definitely a must uh, that I, I really like to drink as well, yeah. Man, well, that's fantastic. So, and Stefano, like I said, when we, we will make sure that, you know, for our audience and listeners, that we include, you know, your website and your posts and how they can contact you, especially for, as you said, the demos, um, like I said, we'll do everything we can to continue to support the work you're doing. Uh, so we're big fans here. So thank you so much. We really appreciate it. Thank you so, so much for that. Really. Absolutely. So the one, so in closing today's show, uh, we hope you've really enjoyed the time as much as we did uh, with Stefano and uh, in, in sharing with you Italy and then specifically in Rome. Um, and the thing that I keep coming back to, and we talk about this a lot on our show, is this idea of relationships, uh, both in leaderships and our work, but it also extends to, you know, friendships and expanding our, our own spheres. And I think, you know, what's interesting to me is, you know, I, you know, Stefano, I think we spent what, 12, maybe 14 days together, you know, in Italy. And even though that was such a short, short period of time, I feel like, you know, I have a friend for life, 
right? And you know these these experiences that you know you have the opportunity to do, you know, we have always strongly encouraged. Um, whether that's in the U.S. or if you do have the opportunity to go abroad, you know, really jump in and take those opportunities because, again, like you said, it, it's not just two weeks. And you, it really does change your perspective, you know, for your lifetime. Um, and you know, I'm grateful for that time that we had, and you know, we're grateful to continue to share with our audience the amazing things you're doing, so that they can hopefully experience some of the some of the same things as well. So. Thank you, everybody. We appreciate it. And uh, we'll see you on a future episode of Take the Hill. All right. Take care, everybody. Thank you so Bye -bye. much. Ciao, ciao.